Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. What must Rusha do to secure the magic word that kills when it's uttered? Elizabeth F. Ellett Today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Many, many thanks to all of our listeners and supporting members who help to keep us going. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. Each week... I strive to bring you a classic selection that is relevant, well-written, and entertaining. If you can't tell, I love what I do. I love discovering so many amazing stories and sharing them with you. But to continue to do this, I need your help. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you'll get a $17 discount. It's a seriously great deal, and helps us to keep doing what we're doing. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a supporting member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. Do you love binging the Classic Tales podcast? How about 36 hours of fantastic stories, curated and narrated for you? The Classic Tales Podcast Season 5 is now available for only $19.99 at our website at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. I've optimized the audiobook for listening on mobile devices. Each chapter or story has customized artwork and an easy-to-navigate table of contents so you can remember where you were and come back to it when you want to listen to a story maybe one more time. The Classic Tales Podcast Season 5. You won't be disappointed. Today's story is by Elizabeth Ellett. Her grandfather was a general in the Revolutionary War, and she grew up imbued with patriotic as well as religious feelings, which nourished her mind. She had a thirst for learning, and at the age of 16, was married to Dr. William H. Ellett, a professor of chemistry at Columbia College. In the college, she took advantage of the opportunities of education and soon rose to prominence. She began to write for the magazines or periodicals of the time, and the name of Mrs. Ellett became recognized in literary circles. Like George Eliot, she also gained a reputation for translating. In 1848, she published her most important original work, The Women of the American Revolution. Today, Ellet is perhaps best known for the scandal she leaked about Edgar Allan Poe's rumored affair with Francis Sargent Osgood, when both were married to other people. 
leaking this story didn't really help her at all. Poe maligned her in the press, knocked her writings, accused her of plagiarism, and even referred to as short and fat. In print. Today's story was taken from a Danish folktale that Ellet has spiced up with lively characters and wonderful atmosphere. It's on the short side, but delivers some wonderful chills along the way. Now for our personal moment. While we are doing the sets for Romeo and Juliet, the director is doing it as a comedy. I'm very excited. We don't have any kids at Timfew right now, but this director has really created a safe space for the LGBT kids and some of the more vulnerable kids in the school to have a safe place to come and be themselves. And we really want to do our part in supporting that. So, even though we don't have kids there, that's what we do on our weekends. And let's see, Seven is just finishing his grassroots Shakespeare production of Twelfth Night at the Masonic Temple in Salt Lake City this weekend. It has been a real hoot to see this production. It has been so fun. Their philosophy towards the work of Shakespeare is they try and produce it in a way that is similar to the way the work was produced in Shakespeare's time. So they have almost no rehearsal time. They do the whole show in less than 40 hours. They talk to the audience and expect you to react to them. They want you to boo for the villains and cheer for the heroes. It's a lot of fun. And I can't wait to see what he'll do next. Basil and Goldie are also doing similar stuff. So we got a lot of stuff going on right now. And that's our personal moment. And now, The Witch Capruche by Elizabeth F. Ellett. Toke Jarl has been called the Danish Macbeth, and indeed resembles, in his ambition and evil fate, the king whom Shakespeare has immortalized. In other respects, the story is different. The following is the legend as it is current throughout Denmark. Familiar as a household tale among the people, though never recorded in any lasting work. In the Dark Ages when paganism ruled over the land, and the light, even of civilization, but faintly shone, there lived a king in Denmark whose name has not descended to later times. Yet he governed a fair country and possessed much power. At the period of this story, he was in the decline of life and had been twenty years a widower. His only child was a daughter, the beautiful Rusha whose mother had died in giving her birth. In all of the neighboring kingdoms, the fame of Princess Rusha's beauty was widely spread, and many were the noble suitors for her hand. But the princess was proud and imperious as fair. She rejected every proposal of marriage, and treated her lovers with so much scorn that almost all were incited to hate and speak ill of her. She thus raised up enemies on every side. The old king was much incensed at this conduct, and sharply reproved his daughter. "'Was it not enough,' he said, "'that you would not choose one of your suitors, but they must be repulsed with such bitter contempt? Your haughty bearing and evil tongue have converted these friends into foes. Murmur not, therefore, at what I will do. I am old and feeble.' A few years, and I must depart from this earth, 
to take my place among the heroes of Valhalla and drink the mead of Odin. You are young and a woman. Who will shield you when I am gone from the powerful warriors, your enemies? By the hammer of Thor do I swear you will choose a husband who may be your protector and king in my place. If you still refuse to do this, I swear by Odin's golden horn, out of which heroes drink, I will name me a successor. I will not suffer you, ungrateful girl, to rule my people according to your own capricious will. When the king had spoken, he went out, leaving the princess alone. Her face was crimson with anger, and her blue eyes flashed resentment. She paced the room for some time with unquiet steps, for the thought that the sovereignty might be wrested from her was too painful for her to bear. At length, she threw herself into a seat and sat long, with her fair head drooped on her hands. Then, starting up, as if she had suddenly formed a resolution, she retired to her own apartment. For many days after, the old king showed much severity toward his daughter, and his harsh rebukes were frequent. At length, she informed him she was willing to choose a consort. Let all the neighboring princes and nobles, and those who have sought me in marriage, she said, be invited to the court, that I may make choice among them. But her father answered, not so by Odin and Freela. The princes and nobles of the neighboring countries have no longer any pleasure in you. I counsel you to choose one of your own kinsmen. What about Bew the Stout, or Eric, or Sved the Squinter? The princess curled her haughty lip in scorn and answered not. But after some days she signified her choice. The person she selected was not among her rejected suitors. It was Toke Jarl, surnamed the Slender. He was of princely descent, possessed a large patrimony of land, and was moreover distinguished for courage and manly beauty. He was richer than Rusha's own kinsman, so that the old king made no objections to his becoming the husband of his daughter and his declared successor. He dispatched messengers to Toke Jarl, to announce to him his good fortune. Toke was well pleased with the intelligence and praised the blue eyes and the ripe judgment of the princess. He ordered some of his best horses and his finest oxen to be led as a present to the king, with thanks for the honor done him, and announced that he would the next day present himself as a suitor before the beautiful Rusha who should never have reason to repent her choice. The marriage was celebrated with due splendor at the king's castle, where Toke Jarl proved himself a veritable hero, for he drank not only his father-in-law under the table, but also his cousins Bew the Stout, Eric, and Sved the Squinter, without showing himself the slightest symptom of inebriation. After this achievement, he took the fair bride from her maidens and led her to the nuptial chamber. Rusha was not happy, even after her union with the object of her choice. Ambition was her ruling passion, 
and she longed to feel the golden circlet of royalty on her brows, even before it could lawfully become hers by the death of her father. An evil spirit possessed her, and she hated the good old king from the day he had so harshly reproved her and proposed a marriage with one of her cousins. She knew that Tokyarl loved her passionately, and resolved to make him her instrument for the gratification of her wicked desires. She assumed a deep melancholy and a grief-worn aspect, as if she shed many tears in secret. What ails you, Grusha? he would ask, and she would not reply. Then Tok would swear by Thor and Odin that if any one had vexed her, he would die. The cunning princess wept more bitterly and whispered, Could you take away the life of the king, my father, and escape the infamy of being called his murderer? Tok Jarl started and looked earnestly and gloomily on his wife. It is the king, she continued, who torments me day by day. I must die if he is suffered to live. Know also, Tok, that he is about to disinherit me and you, and to declare Eric his successor. The brow of Tok Jarl grew black. You have said it, he exclaimed. It will be done. And he went out hastily. The same day, one of his slaves, a Finlander by birth, stole from the armory of Eric an arrow marked with his name. Tokjarl went forth into the woods with this arrow, where the king was accustomed to hunt. At evening, when the monarch did not return, men were dispatched in search of him. They found his corpse in the wood, the arrow buried in his side. The body was brought back with loud lamentations. The people ran tumultuously to the palace gates. Everyone recognized the arrow, and the cry was, Eric, the bloody Eric, has slain our good king! Death to the murderer! Tokjarl dispatched officers to arrest his wife's cousin, and had his head stricken off in the sight of all. Then he was proclaimed king, and solemnly crowned, with Rusha, his wife. The guilty pair were now at the height they had longed to reach, but happiness came not with power. On the contrary, both grew every day more gloomy and dejected, and each distrusted the other. If the queen had no scruples to doom her own father to death, thought Tokjarl, much less would she hesitate to foster my destruction. And Rusha reflected with equal reason that he who had basely taken away an old man's life at her prompting would as readily sacrifice her whenever his love should be transferred to another. They looked on each other, therefore, with suspicion, the king watching closely every word and action of his consort, and jealously preventing her from any interference in the concerns of the kingdom, lest she should win from him the hearts of the people. The queen hated her husband more and more every day, and would gladly have rid herself of him, but that she feared to undertake any deed of violence. The people loved their young sovereign, who ruled them wisely 
though he was severe even to cruelty in matters of punishment. Rusha, however, was deceitful and cunning, and pondered day and night on the means of accomplishing her wishes without drawing suspicion on herself. One day she wandered alone in the forest, in the depths of which dwelt an old woman, whom common rumor accused of dealings with evil spirits of the wood. The virtuous feared and shunned her, but the queen now sought her out and was not long in finding her. The old woman was picking up sticks. She looked up as she saw her fair young visitor, and a smile curled her withered lips. I am the queen, said Rusha, coming at once to the object of her visit. I seek your aid against Tok Jarl, my husband. What has he done? asked the witch. He practices treason against my life. I would he be dead before I band with him. The old woman dropped her bundle of sticks and stood upright, looking full into the eyes of the queen. I can do nothing for you, she said, till you form a compact with me and those with whom I am leagued. You must sign the compact and give me your blood. Then will your veins be filled with the fire that animates immortal spirits, and you will never taste of death. Will you promise me, then, revenge on Tokyal? Rusha asked, her blue eyes flashing fire. The old woman nodded. Then I will comply with your conditions, said the queen, and the wood witch led the way to a cave, hidden from sight by very thick bushes and foliage that shut out the beams of sun even at noonday. Within the recesses of this cave, the deep darkness was rendered more horrible by hideous shapes that flashed like tongues of flame before the eyes, and by the sullen glare of the fire over which hung the cauldron of infernal preparations. When the queen reappeared from that den of demons, a change had taken place in her looks. Her skin before, so delicately fair, had a strange, dazzling glow, as if tinged with the reflection of sunset. Her eyes were much darker, and flashed with almost intolerable brightness. With a light step and joy in her face, she returned to the city and the palace, having promised before she parted with the witch to visit her on the seventeenth day of every month to renew the league into which they had entered. From that hour, King Tok Jarl was attacked with illness. During the day he suffered not, but as soon as night came, the most agonizing pains tortured him in all his limbs. It seemed to him as if molten metal instead of blood flowed through his veins. The anguish was so intense that it threatened to destroy him. He grew every day more emaciated and wandered like a specter about his palace. All the science of his physicians availed nothing. The little Finnish slave hopeless of relief for his master from ordinary means, determined on a desperate remedy. He went through the woods, and reaching the mountains, 
gathered herbs in the moonlight from which he prepared a drink and administered it to the king, who lay helpless on his couch and knew not what was done to him. After a while, the pain abated. Tokyarl rose up in bed and looked around him. What has been done to me? he asked. The Finnish slave threw himself on his knees before the king. My gracious lord, he cried, I know now what is your malady. I have sought the most poisonous herbs impregnated by the moonbeams and banned by evil spirits, and distilled them into a drink of which you have taken. The potion has done you no harm, but driven away your pains. This would not have happened had your malady been a natural one. Now I know that my lord the king is bewitched, and I know moreover that if he had not means to break the spell, his life will have been sacrificed, and the land will have to seek another ruler. Tokyarl sprang in horror from his couch. By Thor's hammer and the horn of Odin, I swear, he cried, if you will help me discover who has done me this evil turn, from that hour you will be free, and the highest noble at my court. But the boy quietly seated himself on the footstool by the royal couch, and answered, My lord and master, I would always remain your slave and servant, and receive from your hands my wheat bread and honey, and cured bear's flesh, and as much old mead as I can drink, may this be. I will speak my whole mind. Tokyarl nodded, and the boy went on. Consider, my lord, how long it is since this bad demon had power over you. Was it not from that very night, when my royal lady the queen was missing all day from the palace, and returned late, saying she had lost herself in the wood? Had she not three times since wandered in the same wood, and been lost, and returned by night? By all your gods, my king, and their horns and their hammers, of which I know nothing, I do believe that my lady the queen knows but too well the way to the dwelling of the old witch Runa, who can conjure all the wood spirits, and has for a servant a dark-looking elf, a little demon with red tongue always hanging out of his mouth. The king grew paler and paler while his servant was speaking. Then he seated himself on the side of the bed and mused a while. At length, he said, You are right. Yes, I do believe you are right. May all good and evil spirits help me to take vengeance on my faithless wife. Tell me, boy. Have you observed when the day returns? The day after tomorrow, my lord. It is well. And the hour, do you know it? I do, my lord. We will follow the queen and hear what she will say to old Runa. Well said, boy. Now give me another draught of your poison drink that I may go to sleep. That golden horn over there is full of excellent mead. Drink to my health. Greep administered to the king another draught of the medicine, and the monarch fell into a slumber, while the boy crouched on the low stool, sipped the mead from the golden horn, and pleased himself with the prospect of abundance of honey, wheat bread, and bear's flesh. The next day, and the following, 
Queen Rusha observed that the king gained strength visibly, in spite of the power of her spell. The poison draught of the little grape had restored him. Her dismay was excessive. She longed impatiently for the seventh hour of the evening, and as soon as the west was crimson with sunset, she departed, attired in a plain dress and her face concealed by a veil. She left the city, and with steps trembling from eagerness, hastened into the forest. Grape led the king also by a secret and shorter path through the wood close to the old witch's cave. There, hidden among the bushes, but near enough to hear all that was said, they awaited the arrival of the queen. Rusha came at length, stood before the cave and called, Runa! Three times. At the third call, a sullen rumbling noise was heard within the cavern. The iron door, which had been closed, opened slowly, and the old witch appeared. What do you want? she asked. Help! cried Rusha. Your spell has no longer any effect. For the last three days, Tokiarl has been on the recovery. In vain, every night, by your direction, I have strewed coals around his waxen image and enveloped it in poisonous vapors. He has seemed yesterday and today stronger than ever. The hag knit her brows. If it be as you say, there must be a counter-spell at work more potent than mine. If this avails not, you must deprive the king of life at once. And lose the pleasure of tormenting him? cried the evil queen. But how can it be done? The witch laughed bitterly, for she was piqued at the failure of her magic in the first instance. Were he a hero as mighty as the great Thor himself, she said, he must yield to the word of power which I will give you. Rusha's eyes sparkled. Oh, give it to me, good Runa, she exclaimed. Runa pronounced the word of power. The king listened breathlessly. When you meet Tok Jarl, continued the witch, fix your eyes steadily upon his. Utter the word and call him by name. He will fall instantly, struck down by its magic. Now, fare thee well. My spirits summon me. The witch vanished, and Rusha turned from the cave on her way homewards. At the entrance of the wood, she suddenly encountered the king, standing in a threatening attitude, with his drawn sword uplifted. She started back with a scream of terror, but with scornful mockery he shouted the word given her by Runa, adding her own name, and at the same time dealt her a furious blow with the sword, which cleft her head. Rusha sank to the ground. Tok Jarl fled to his castle, wiping the blood from his sword with his hand. Then he returned it to its sheath. Soon his hand began to burn, as if scorched with fire. In vain he plunged it into water and moist earth. The horrible burning extended to his arm, gradually spreading over his whole body, and before many hours elapsed, he expired in dreadful torments. Rusha could not die, as the witch had assured her, nor could she live like the other inhabitants of earth. 
To this day, it is said she wanders about her native country, a being who belongs neither to the living nor the dead. Many persons have averred that she has been seen wandering at night in white, fluttering garments, with face beautiful but ghastly pale, her veil red with blood that continually flows from the gaping wound in her head. Old and young in Denmark believe in her existence and that she sometimes appears. From the circumstance that the word of power given her by Runa was supposed to sound like cap, that has become the popular prefix to her name, and she is universally known as the fair but evil witch, Caprouche. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Witch Caprouche by Elizabeth F. Ellett. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Music